Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I pray that now you will speak clearly to our hearts the truth of what this whole season is about in Christ. Amen. It is Christmas, and our Lord has come. In this glorious moment, we have celebrated the birth of Christ this week. And hopefully, while we were telling other people to keep Christ in Christmas, we did not let ourselves get sidetracked by all of the different things the world will try to do to keep us from hearing. But, G. Curtis Jones challenges us with something he wrote years ago and a much-needed understanding of the season. Now, I'm going to warn you, it's a little abrupt, so please listen to what he really had to say. He wrote, It seems to me that one of the tragedies of Christmas is that we continue to worship baby Jesus. In fact, too many of us are still in the nursery with rhyme and song. We are too often teddy bear Christians. The greater message of Christmas is that this baby who uniquely invaded the world grew up to be the savior of mankind. His devastating courage and contagious love compel us to visit Bethlehem, the starting place in the celestial journey, the Bethlehem of new birth. My friends, my sisters and brothers, we need always to remember that the birth of Bethlehem was only the beginning. Just the beginning of something amazing. And to do that, I'm going to turn to a passage in Titus. Now, I'm quite certain that you're thinking, that doesn't talk about babies or anything. You're right. The narrative of Jesus' birth is found only in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Why Titus? Well, before I get into the text, which will reveal why Titus, I want to let you know that in the verse just before our text, Titus uh, 3, 3, Paul wrote and said, all of us are sinners. All of us were lost. All of us wallowed in our own desires. All of us lived in a world of hate, hating one another. Not a very uplifting sound, is it? But that's what he did after that horribly hopeless observation. He gave an amazing truth about the change that is brought about in the hearts of sinful humanity because Christ fulfilled his purpose in coming to earth. And so we're going to take a look at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. I ask you to stand. This incredibly wonderful passage of Scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. The very first verse gives us one of the most beautifully, hauntingly poetic statements, I think, in all of the world of word of God that talks about Jesus, the Son of living God, coming to earth. Isn't this amazing? When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. That's Paul's way of saying, 
the Son of God came. The Son of God came to move upon us in a powerful way. And in this passage of Scripture that he gives to Titus, his son in the ministry, Paul wrote about the outcome of what happened when God's kindness and love, Jesus uh, of Nazareth, Jesus the Lord, appeared on earth, manifested among humanity. We read in our opening uh, passage of Scripture, uh, our responsive reading, we beheld the glory of God. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. God came and made himself known in Jesus. And that it's important that we always remember, we never allow ourselves to forget that Jesus, as the embodiment of God's grace, brought the hope of salvation to humanity. That's why the baby was born. Not so we could have a wonderful and beautiful Christmas season. He was born to come and change us. How has God's grace embodied in His Son what was done? Well, we're going to look at several manifestations of that grace in our text today and see how, just how, the kindness and love of God appeared to humanity in Jesus Christ. And the very first statement is one I will be singing, Hallelujah, thank you, praise you God forever. Because it is in Christ that God's mercy has been manifested. In Christ, God's mercy has been manifested. To all who would hear, all who would believe, all who would receive the gift, I'm about to give you mercy through my Son. Paul wrote that the salvation that came through Christ was because of mercy. Now remember, he starts, the context of this verse, this passage, follows a brutally honest statement that there is no one on the face of the earth who is just who is right, and he includes himself, Titus, and all believers everywhere. We were all in sin. But in Christ, hope was born. Again, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And in that verse, in the original text, the pronouns we and his are in emphatic position. In other words, it's been pointed out there's a heavy emphasis in this passage that indicates what we do and what God does. And what we do is not sufficient. We needed His mercy. Now, the basic meaning of mercy in the Bible is kindness shown, concern shown for someone who is in serious need. Uh, it is the idea of God holding back what we deserve, instead showing kindness. And Paul issued with that statement, we were saved not by the righteous things we had done, but by his mercy. From that point on, all who know Jesus, folks, that's something to get excited and praise the Lord about. Now, composer Franz uh, Joseph Haydn uh, was attempting to write a sacred piece of music. It's, it's a, it, there's actually a genre that is known as that miserere. And the word means, have mercy on me. And the basic text that gave birth to many different songs is, have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of your loving kindness. David's prayer of confession. But he's writing a song about a musical piece about confession. And something strange happened as he sought the Lord, as he began to pray for guidance in this passage, this sacred work. And folks, you can imagine any song named Have Mercy on Me is probably going to be a bit of a somber song. But when Haydn begins to write, he said, I felt that in Infinite God would surely have mercy on his finite creature, pardoning dust for being dust. He said, these thoughts cheered me up. He thought, knowing who God is, 
I'm not just crying out for mercy. I know this is the God of mercy. And so he said, above the title of miserere, have mercy upon me, he wrote another word, allegro. And what's exciting about that word, if you're not musically inclined, if you never studied these things, he did not say, this is a song to be played like a funeral dirge. He did not say, this is a song that is to be played as though we are being crushed. Allegro means a tempo that has a brisk beat, a tempo that is full of joy. And he had joy because God, he knew, was the God of mercy. That's what Paul's saying. God gave us mercy in Christ. You see, we have no righteousness in us that could cause God to save us. And I don't, I don't mean to be cruel here. It's the reality of who we are. And I believe this is one of the major reasons the world rejects our faith. Take away the idea of all the people who wear the name of Christ who act like a bunch of Pharisees. It's this issue. The world does not like to admit we cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. In fact, the world will joyfully declare a false champion that we can save ourselves. And one of the most popular songs written in the 20th century is a wonderful example. John Lennon's Imagine. As soon as I mention that word, some of you know that song so well, the tune's going through your head right now. And people love this song. It was the best-selling song of Lennon's solo career. The Broadcast Music Inc., BMI, named Imagine as one of the hundred most performed songs of the 20th century. Think about that. An entire century. This is one of the hundred out of all the different songs composed that has been played and performed. In 1999, it was ranked number 30 on the Recording Industry Association of America's list of three of the 365 songs of the century. That same year, it earned a Grammy Hall of Fame award and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. People love this song. And it is a catchy tune. When I hear it, it that earworm gets planted. But as much as people love it, the moment you begin to look, and you don't have to look with a microscope, just listen to the words. The lyrics betray the meaning of the song. It starts out pretty nice, wonderful. Imagine a world where there is peace. Uh, imagine a world that is perfect, a utopia on earth, where everyone gets along and loves one another. John Lennon was actually saying, well, let's hear what he was saying. Imagine a world of peace. Imagine a world where there is no materialism where nobody fights to scrape to, to get ahead of the Joneses. Imagine a world where there are no borders separating us. There are no countries to keep us apart. This is all sounding really good. And then do you remember the line, and no religion too? Because in Lenin's mind, one of the problems with humanity was religion. In an interview, he actually once stated, imagine, that says, imagine that there was no more religion, no more country, no more politics, is virtually, this is John Lennon, is virtually the Communist Manifesto. Okay, all of a sudden, maybe not so nice. Now, in the interview, he went on to say, I don't know if it's one of those moments he thought, well, maybe I need to rank that back. He said, not the kind of communism in Russia or China. Remember, he said no government. And he said there's never been a truly socialized state. So what he is saying is the utopia he describes 
does not exist. But just imagine if it did. Wouldn't that be great? Let's just feel bubbly and warm if we can imagine all of these things that separate us. This this week, because uh, Christmas stations have about 10 to 20 songs that they play over and over again by different artists, I've lost track of how many times I've heard his song, So This Is Christmas. And in the background, there's a, a, a choir of children singing, War is over if you want it. War, and it ends with, War is over now. And the kids are cheering, and it's, this isn't the real world. And the idea that all those things that separate us, if we just knew better, if we just wanted it enough, we could erase everything that divides, everything that conquers us. But the reality is, there will never be a utopia here on earth. For one major reason. Us. Us, the human race, embedded in the concept of sin, embedded in a world that says, me first. But we do have hope. And we do have a promise of a better world. But it is not through what we've done. It is through a mercy that withholds from us what we should get and a grace, the flip side of mercy, that gives us what we do not deserve, the kingdom of God. And so I'm telling you today, don't think that humanity is going to straighten ourselves out. But we can celebrate this. We can walk with God only because He made known His kindness and love. God moved so that we could have hope and peace and joy and love in Him. So our celebration should not end in the manger of Bethlehem. The love and kindness of God was made manifest when the Son of the living God became human. So, in Christ, the mercy of God is manifest. The next manifestation is equally wonderful. It is in Christ that rebirth of sinful people has been manifested. The idea of a new chance a fresh start, a new birth is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul made it clear. Again, he's already said we needed the mercy of God, but he makes it clear here as well. Paul made it clear that the salvation needed by Christians came when God granted the necessary rebirth. When God did what was necessary to let you and me have a whole new life. And it says, God saved us. And the tense of that verb points to the all for, once for allness of this idea. God has saved us. Now, you have heard me say, it's, it's proper to talk about I was, I was saved at the age of eight when I confessed Jesus Christ as my savior. I am the, in the process of being saved as God continually moves in my life. Uh, bringing me closer and closer to the image of God, this is the idea of sanctification. And I will fully and finally be saved on the end of it all when Christ brings all of this world to a close and we are forever in the kingdom of God. But when I say I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved, that's from my perspective. You know what God sees? You were saved. Period. We looked at this at another point in time, but God is saying there is nothing more that needs to be done for salvation to be complete in the human heart. And there's several terms that Paul uses here. First of all, he talks about washing. Now, there are some who will look at this passage of Scripture and say, see, I told you, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And they look at the washing as what is known as baptismal regeneration. But to say that there has to be a physical act that we can accomplish in order to finish our salvation, folks, runs contrary to everything that Paul says. 
when he declares we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, and a religious ritual is an action of work. Now, it symbolizes what happens. But to say we must be plunged under the water to be saved runs in the face of what God tells us. The alternative is understanding he saved us by washing. He's talking about an internal spiritual cleansing that has happened. A change within us. And then he talks about rebirth. Washing by rebirth. And the word that is used here, it is used only in this text in the Bible. Uh, but in the New Testament, the idea is used over and over again. Uh, some of your translations may have the word regeneration. Uh, it is the, the idiom, the word that is used, literally means to be born again. We find it's corollary when Jesus looks at, at uh, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. This is the idea of a completely change of life that is moving to take us to where we should be in life. Rebirth. Then he talks about renewal, which is again, you cause something to become new and different. You cause something to become better. Just think about this. If you're uh, designed to remodel your house, give your house a renewal, my number one guess is you're not trying to make your house look worse. You want it better. That's why we have the reboot. That's why we have the renewal. And this is what God is doing in us, changing us. Now, I don't, I'm not going to want to weigh you down with grammar, but I'm going to give you a little bit of grammar here. There's only one preposition between these four, these two words. The preposition, he saved us through the rebirth and renewal, which suggests this is one thing. If it were two separate acts, Paul probably would have written through the washing of rebirth and through the renewal. But it's one concept, and it's the overall concept. He saved us through the act of salvation accomplished in Jesus Christ. There, He saved us and continues from our perspective in our life, renewing us over and over again, making us better. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. Folks, this passage of Scripture gets me a little bit pumped up, and I'm about to get pumped up again. By the washing of rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit, who he gave to us generously through Christ. In that one statement, we have a picture of our Triune God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three involved in saving us. In other words, everything that God is, is being poured into you and me to save us. Again, listen, God poured out the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. When he uses the word poured out, it's a beautiful picture of what happened on the day of Pentecost. And in Joel, the prophesied Pentecost. In the latter days, God will pour out His Spirit among all flesh. He poured it out. And when He said He poured it out on us, Paul was saying, this isn't just something that happened on Pentecost. It happens for every child of God. Folks, we, we, don't divide, you know, the Father is the one who created, the Son is the one who saves, the Spirit is the one who fills. God, in all of His glory, was involved so that you, so that I could call God Father. An incredibly statement. And it reflects something very important. Not by the works that we had done, but what God had done in His mercy. Because we need so much more than an attempt to fix ourselves. 
I would ask for a show of hands, how many of you will make some New Year's resolutions? But if I ask the question, I will feel compelled to ask, how many of you break New Year's resolutions? So I'm not going to embarrass any of us today because, yeah, we all have great plans for a new year that seldom are fulfilled. The truth is, in our text, it flies in the face of human pride because it doesn't matter how many resolutions you make in your life. It doesn't matter how many attempts to fix yourself, uh, fix whatever is broken inside of you, or even the arrogance that suggests, well, I'm okay. I don't need to be fixed. There's nothing wrong with me. And that it is inherently wrong that you should even say there is. Why? Why can't we fix ourselves? Because every aspect of our lives has been immersed in the problem of sin. I loved the ministry of Chuck Colson. I love his writings after he came to faith in Christ. And he had he, his own testimony was he had to go to prison for his water great crimes before he would ever become a Christian. He's written a lot of beautiful books and he's had an incredible ministry with prisoners uh, for many, many years uh, following that conversion. And he wrote a book, Being the Body, in which he describes an incident where he was invited by a Mr. Abercrombie to, to a Bible study that he sponsored and speak to these men. They were all businessmen, all up-and-comers in the city, all important people, and Chuck Colson is the one asked, come and talk to us. And the, the, the focus was pretty clear. Uh, Abercrombie asked him to speak at the luncheon, and then afterwards they were going to have some questions and answers. It's a pretty typical kind of thing at such a meeting. So somewhere in his talk, Colson said, somewhere I referred to our sinful nature. Actually, total depravity was the phrase I used. I noticed at the time that a few individuals shifted uncomfortably in their leather chairs. And sure enough, it must have hit the mark uh, because after I finished, the very first question was about sin. And this was a question. You don't really believe we are sinners, do you? I mean, you're too sophisticated to be one of those hellfire and brimstone fellows, an older gentleman said, looking at Colson in his blue pinstripe very professional looking. And he said, intelligent people don't go for that backcountry preacher stuff. And he thought, I'm sure that he put Colson in his place. And Abercrombie was listening. But in the answer, Colson said, yes, sir, I believe we are desperately sinful. What's inside of each of us is really pretty ugly. In fact, we deserve hell and we'll get it, but for the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Mr. Abercrombie, well, he couldn't hold back anymore. He was very distressed, and he said, I don't know about that. I'm a good person, and I've been all my life. I go to church, and I get exhausted spending all my time doing good works. The room got very quiet. I mean, this is the host, and now he's putting Colson straight. And Chuck Colson cannot be accused of being someone who reads How to Win Friends and Influence People at the, at, at the face of what he believes. His answer to Mr. Abercrombie, if you believe that, Mr. Abercrombie, and I hate to say this, for you certainly won't invite me back. You are, for all of your good works, further away from the kingdom than the people I work with in prison who are aware of their own sins. Someone at the other end of the table coughed. Coffee cup is rattling and Mr. Abercrombie is turning red. Again, Coulson speaking his heart. In fact, gentlemen, he said, I added, drawing on a favorite R.C. Sproul shocker. If you think about it, we are all really more like Adolf Hitler than like Jesus Christ. And everything got quiet. Nobody saying anything until finally 
Somebody, I guess probably out of mercy, asks a question that changes the subject. When they were through, he's getting ready to leave. Mr. Abercrombie approached Colson and said, didn't you say you wanted to make a phone call when we were finished? I started to say it wasn't necessary. Then I realized he wanted to get me alone. Yes, thank you. He led me down the corridor to an empty office. As soon as we were inside, he said bluntly, I don't have what you have. I know. But you can. God is touching your heart right now. No, 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 no. Maybe sometime. I pressed a bit more. And moments later, we were both on our knees. Mr. Abercrombie asked forgiveness for his sins and turned his life over to Jesus. Colson concludes his story by making his statement. Martin Luther was right. The ultimate proof of the sinner is that he doesn't know his own sin. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need Jesus. I am fine. I am good. Everything in my life is wonderful. And because we're down here in the South, still in the Bible Belt, ask somebody how they are, they might answer, I'm blessed. And every time somebody answers, I'm blessed, I want to ask, well, what do you mean? The reality is, we can't fix ourselves, but that's not the final word. Because the love and the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, we can actually become new creatures because the triune God has changed us. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I am happy. I am actually grateful that my wholeness is not dependent upon me. I am thrilled that my salvation isn't based on how good Danny does. Because I would be forever periled every time I got behind the wheel of a car. Every time I drive on past road. My salvation was about me being perfect, I'd never make it. But it's not. Jesus Christ came, yes, born at Bethlehem, but he grew up to be the perfect sacrifice, the atoning Son of God, in order to make us new, in order to give us the chance of rebirth and renewal. And then if you can't get excited about mercy, you can't get excited about this idea that God has moved to bring rebirth to us, then hopefully this last manifestation will get your heart where we need to be. Because when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, it is in Christ that hope for eternal life has been manifested. I think it's almost a universal trait among humanity. There's some who say, no, that's I don't. But I think for most people, There is a fear deep inside of us that when when we die, it's over. People want to believe that there is something beyond this life. And we look at a lot of different ways to get there. But Paul is saying to Titus something very important for us to hear. Paul assured Titus that eternal life was possible through the saving act of God. Yes, there is more. And it's abundantly more than anything we could experience here. And it came because the love and kindness of God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared, walked among us, uh, perfect, without sin, so that He could... Because God, Father, Son, and Spirit has moved in us to make it possible for us to have salvation, there is a change in status. We were, everyone in this room, pastor included, we were broken, we were hopeless, we were sinners, 
We fought what God wanted. We lived in a world of hate, often hating those who did not agree with everything we thought. And we couldn't fix ourselves. But once Jesus Christ has confessed as Lord, a person who is now reborn, who is being renewed, belongs no longer to this world. Paul wrote that those who believed were children of God. Now, he doesn't use the word children, but let's think about this. Throughout the Word of God, the New Testament, the use of the idea of son, uh, child, is used to express the relationship between God's people and their father. And there is a logical extension from the word, you are the children of God, to the idea of you are heirs of God. And that can be seen throughout the Old Testament. In the books of Romans, Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Hebrews, James. You see, when we have confessed Christ, when He have received the gift of salvation, we were adopted into God's family. And we became heirs. We had some friends way back in my, uh, at my home church back in Paris, Texas. When God got hold of my whole family at, at the same time after dad's, uh, retirement, we met the, uh, the Kirtleys. And they had this beautiful little daughter named Laura. And Laura was adopted. And she knew as soon as we could get, get hold of the idea, she knew as she was adopted. Her parents never tried to hide it from her. And so this beautiful, wonderful, bubbly little seven-year-old kid runs up to me and says, I'm store-bought. Now they were told they would never have children of their own. After they store-bought Laura, they had three of their own. But this little girl understood something. Mom and Dad chose me. They loved me. And they wanted me. And when we hear that God has adopted us, it says God wants us. We were sinners. We were broken. We fought him. And he said, I want you and I'm going to do what is necessary for you to become one of my heirs. And so we can say, I'm already an heir of Christ. I'm an heir of God. But there's also reality that that is not going to be fulfilled right now. Knowing that I have God within my life, knowing that Christ has saved me, knowing that I have a home ahead of me, doesn't take away that fact that home is ahead of me. And somewhere out in the future, if Jesus Christ returns and calls me to his side with the saints throughout his world, wonderful. Or, if I pass from this earth in death, death that has been swallowed up in victory because of what Jesus Christ has done, I have hope. And I hold on to this. And it's more than wishful thinking. Becoming heirs in Jesus Christ means we have a guaranteed promise that we belong to God. And Paul gave that guarantee In Titus 1, verse 2, when he talks about this new life in Christ, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. All those who would have faith would be God's children. So what does eternal life mean? Well, its simplest phrase, the word translated, means life that doesn't ever end. It is ongoing, unlimited duration. And there are a lot of passages of Scripture that focus on that. But there's another idea found in the Word of God of the eternal life that isn't totally focused on duration of life, but instead on the quality of life. Eternal life belongs to those who are gods, who belong to God. And therefore, they have received a life that has been imparted by God. They've been transformed and renewed uh, in this life through Christ, they have life that is fully open to God, centered on Him, and they have a reality 
that there is one day ahead of us, all of the evil, moral evil of this world, all of the influence of sin, all of that will be swallowed up because we will be home. We have an unending and glorious life ahead of us because the love and kindness of God our Savior appeared. As much as we want to believe it, folks, we are not immortal. We are not immortal. Uh, There is nothing inherently and the idea of immortality of the soul uh, was a Greek philosophy that said there is something inside of us that is immortal. Only they actually meant you existed before you came to earth and uh, you would exist again after. That's not the emphasis of the scripture. In Christ, because of what he's done on the cross and in the empty tomb, we have been given the gift of immortality. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, There were some of the Christians in Corinth who were getting really upset because they were thinking there's no such thing as a resurrection. They were Greek in their upbringing, their ethnicity, their philosophy. And the idea that we would have a new body just was something a Greek couldn't handle. So they were into this immortality of soul. They were rejecting the, the... the idea of resurrection. Paul, the whole 15th chapter is built on why the resurrection is absolutely necessary. And it's couched in the term, if there is no resurrection, then there, then Jesus wasn't res- raised from the dead. And if he wasn't resurrected, we don't have any hope anyway. But toward the end, again, a wonderfully glorious passage. 1 Corinthians 15, getting in verse 50, Paul wrote... I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself within the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality... When the imperishable has been clothed with imperishable because of Christ's action, when the mortal with immortality, then that saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Because of the promise of the Christ who came, our inheritance is assured. And it is a life a victory, a life of glory, completely and totally because of what he has done. Not because of us, not because of something inherent in us. Uh, As people, we will be given eternal life. And we can experience life everlasting because God has justified us by his grace. This was why Christ was born. This is why if all we get excited about is Christmas and the rest of the year we are ho-hum in our excitement about Christ, this is why we are in trouble. Jesus Christ was born to give us life. It is known as incarnation, God taking upon himself human flesh, living at us, as us. He came to give us eternal life. I believe as Christians, we have abundant life right now. We are inheritors of eternal life. And our eternal life began when we gave our lives to Christ. It will be completed at the end in the twinkling, in a moment of the, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The story you and I have to tell is not that Jesus is born, period. Jesus is born. And the glory of God is going to be manifested through what Christ had done. I came across a story recently called The Collector. And it tells of a wealthy man 
who had a very devoted son who lived with him. Uh, the old man was a widower, but his son was by him side constantly, and they shared a profound love for art. He was a very wealthy man, so part of what they did was travel the world collecting pieces of art that you and I are never going to own. In that collection, he had works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and others. And it was a wonderful time. They shared together their love for art. But then war broke out. And then his son enlisted and was sent overseas. Day after day, the old man, father prayed his son would be returned safely, held his breath, waited for news. And one autumn day, near Thanksgiving, the dreaded telegram came. The telegram boarded in black. The young man had died bravely in battle, trying to evacuate those who were caught under fire. And it broke the old man. He was devastated, distraught, lonely. And Christmas was coming up, a very special time for he and his son to celebrate together. And on that Christmas morning, a knock sounded at the door. And he opened the door, and there was a a soldier standing there. had a small package that he gave to the father. He said, your son and I became very close. And he told me all about your joint art collection. I myself am an artist, and I wanted to give you this. The old man unwrapped the package, and it was a portrait of his son. Striking in detail. It wasn't a masterpiece by anything the world's art collectors would think. But it, he treasured it. He knocked aside thousands of dollars worth of art to hold it, to hang it in the most appropriate place, the, the, the place above his mantle that would, would be the focal place of everything when people would come in and see it would be his son first. He would tell people it was the most precious work of art he had ever seen. Months passed, and the old man was receiving letter after letter, some from the people his son had helped save, all saying what a brave man his son was, and he could be very proud of him. Every day, that picture just became more and more precious in the memory of his son. The following spring, the old man grew ill and passed away. And you can imagine with a collection like that, with no air to receive it, the art world was dizzy with expectation. They couldn't wait to come and get their hands on those Monets and Picassos. And an auction had been set up. And according to the old man's instruction, the very first piece of art to be offered was not on the list. It was the painting of the man's son. When the auctioneer asked for an opening bid, no one said a thing. So he asked, who will open the bidding at 100? There's a lot of awkward moments of silence. And somebody at the back of the room said, let's go on to the next piece. The auctioneer said, no, uh, under the instructions, we have to sell this one first. Finally, a neighbor of the old man spoke up. said, will you take $50 for the painting? It's all I have, but I knew the boy. And I liked him. So I'd like to have it. $50. We have $50, shouted the auctioneer. Who will, will anyone go higher? No one did. Going once, going twice, gone. And the gavel fell. Everybody breathed a sigh of relief. They could now get to the good stuff. And you can imagine how shocked they would be when the auctioneer looked at the crowd and said, the auction is over. And people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean it's over? There's still all this wonderful art. What about the masterpieces? The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will, whoever takes the sun gets it all. In 1 John 5, 11 and 12, the word of God declares, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life.
Folks, it is in Christ that God's mercy has been manifested. It is in Christ the rebirth of sinful people has been manifested. And it is in Christ that hope for eternal life has been manifested. So let's commit ourselves. Not in a mean spirit of way, which sometimes happens at Christmas when we get upset because a clerk has, has to tell us happy holidays and we get bent out of shape and we fuss at them. But in the spirit of the Lord who came, let's make a commitment. This year, we want to share the full story of Jesus with this world. Not just the story of the manger, but the story of a life, the story of a cross, the story of an empty tomb. There are people waiting in our lives, every person here, there is someone in your sphere of influence who needs the greatest gift of all time. They need what we can celebrate today. That the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared in Jesus and they don't know it yet. Let's ask God to drive this home in our hearts that we will have a joy and a hope, and a peace, and a love that will flow out from us because we have received the kindness and love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's open ourselves to becoming what God wants us to be. And one of the main things God wants us to be are witnesses. Sharing the truth about Christ. Rejoicing in He who has saved us.